Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of both uh, Mormon Stories Podcast and A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Uh, this is a this is a joint production. Uh, I am your host, John DeLynn, and today I'm very excited to have uh, with us an old friend, um, an old family friend. His name is Russell Stevenson, um, and I met Russell because he was best friends with my nephew, Arthur Hatton, when he was at the University of Kentucky in Lexington getting a master's degree in history. But... Um, Russ has gone on to distinguish himself both as a graduate of the University of Kentucky, but also um, as a as a teacher of of, uh, of American history and world history and other interesting courses in history in in Utah. Uh, he's he's taught at BYU. He's taught at Salt Lake Community College and at the Art Institute of Salt Lake. Um, he has a blog called the Mormon History Guy. Is that right, Russ? That's correct. What's the URL for that? Uh, MormonHistoryGuy.com. Right. And um, and most interestingly, and the reason why we have him on today, he has just finished self-publishing a book entitled Black Mormon, The Story of Elijah Abels. Now, that name is going to sound a little bit different to some of you because um, Elijah Abel or Abel's uh, is is known to many of you as Elijah Abel, or one of the first, maybe the first, um, you know, a member of the Church of African descent to to not only join the Church but to hold the priesthood and become a seventy. Now I may have some of my historical facts already mixed up, but don't worry, Russ. I'm going to give you the full chance to clear this up. But today we are oh, going great. to be talking about the story of Elijah Abel or Elijah Abel's um, and and it's going to be based on on Russell's book. So so Russell, welcome to uh, a thoughtful faith and Mormon stories. Good to be here, John. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Yeah, so I um, I, I learned about Elijah Abel. Should I call? Are we going to call him Abel or Abel's? What are we? Going to call I'm him? going to call him Elijah Abel's. Um, okay, all right. So I'll, I'll try and, and do that too. Um, you know, I, I heard about him probably eight or nine years ago. I don't know. I, I, I read somewhere that uh, Joseph Smith had ordained uh, at least uh, two or three black men to the priesthood uh, before Brigham Young had kind of taken it away. For those of you who uh, haven't heard, one of my very early episodes on Mormon Stories was with Margaret Young and Darius Gray, where where they talked about um, you know the full history sort of not the full history but uh, you know uh, several hours worth of uh, history about uh, blacks in the LDS priesthood maybe we'll put a link to that up on this episode but that's where I first heard about Elijah Abel's and um, but but to be honest other than the fact that that he is alleged to have, have received the priesthood and to become a seventy I really don't know much about him so. Today the goal is to just to spend an hour learning about a story, 
and maybe even to find, I kind of challenged Russell to find a way to inspire us about, about his life and, and just to see, see what, what we could turn up. That's kind of interesting from your history. So why don't we, why don't we dive in Russ? Let's do it. And and fortunately uh, your challenge uh, was, I mean, was fairly simple when you're dealing with a, a man like Elijah Abel's, you know, his kind of story is the sort of story that tells itself, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of creative license to, you know, make his life into an inspiring one. Uh, you know, the first point I, I, I want to cover just the way we can clear the air is to talk about the spelling of his name, because there are going to be a lot of people who, you know, they, they hear this and they will question, you know, whether, you know, whether I truly am talking about the same person or if I have, you know, really looked into his life, you know, in, in all of its depths. So let, let's talk about that spelling for just a second. We basically have two renderings of his name based on original manuscript evidence of his signature. Um, they come from a letter that was written to Brigham Young you know, with his name signed at the bottom in 1854. And then there was a second document, a, a receipt a receipt of payment for a per, for a work performed for the Perpetual Emigrating Fund, signed in 1858. The first one was spelled Elijah Abel's. The second one was spelled Elijah Abel, A-B-L-E. I chose to use the first rendering largely because it, it was the earliest rendering, and that is generally my rule of thumb. Um, that being said, you can make a good argument for um, you know the Elijah Abel rendering as, as well. So, you know, who is this man whose name we, we can't even spell properly? You know, he, he was born and raised in uh, Antebellum, Maryland, um, sometime between 1808 and 1812. Whether he was a slave or not, it, it cannot be known with certainty. Uh, we can say that according to census numbers in, you know, the candidates for his birth, you know, Frederick and, and Washington County, you know, the slaves outnumbered the free blacks uh, by substantial numbers. So you know, if we're to use statistics to measure this, uh, you can make a good argument that he was indeed a, a runaway slave. Uh, but that's that cannot be known uh, with any degree of certainty. And, and anyone who says that it can be, um, is is really going beyond the the evidence that that is available. Okay. So, at some point in his life, uh, we know that, you know, he he was um, he, he was a father to a child, and that this child died. We don't know what happened to, to her, other than the fact that her name was Delilah. At some point, you know, he was separated from the mother of this child, and eventually he ran away to you know, the western frontier, to the city of Cincinnati. And it was in Cincinnati where he first came into contact with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we have very little records of this initial interaction, um, except that the man who baptized him was not a missionary. He was a local. It was you know, really a, a great example of member missionary work. He was a, a young father, you know, a couple young kids at home. My my guess is, you know, they uh, came to know each other through some kind of a, you know, through some kind of labor. You know, oftentimes you had you know free blacks and whites intermingling uh, in Cincinnati at the time. So th that could very well be the case. Regardless, uh, it doesn't appear that there was any sense of a color barrier between these two men. Is he, uh, the man baptized him 
quite freely, and Elijah Abel's moved from Cincinnati up to Kirtland you know, in, in the mid-1830s, and that was where uh, Elijah first met the prophet Joseph Smith. And this was going to be a friendship that uh, really would transcend generations. Uh, it, it would la- memories of it would last long beyond Joseph Smith's death and even Elijah Abel's death. Okay, so so was there any to do about the fact that a, a black man, maybe even a former slave or runaway slave, was joining the church? You know, at the time he joined, or, or do you know? Is there any? To what extent could we expect, like the Times and Seasons or the Evening and the Morning Star, whatever the names of those publications were, to have mentioned him or written about him? You know, at that early point when he joined, or would it have just been no big deal? Like he would have just been viewed as any other member. Right. You've asked a couple questions there, and they have a couple different answers. Uh, first of all, was there any kind of to do uh, about a black man uh, joining the church and you know, being integrated into, into the body of the saints? And um, the answer to that is there absolutely was. Uh, it's it's fair to say that. The only reason Elijah Abel's was even accepted into the Mormon community at all was because of Joseph Smith's strong support of his membership. Uh, we have evidence that several of Joseph Smith's confidants resisted um, quite ardently you know, the idea of any blacks, you know, becoming Latter-day Saints. We know Zebedee Coltrane. You know, he was, you know, one of the first major members of the School of the Prophets. He he refused initially to perform any kind of temple ordinances uh, for Elijah Abel's. He wouldn't give him his washings and and anointings. And Joseph Smith basically told him, Zeb, you're going to do this. And you're going to do it because, you know, basically I'm the prophet. And Zebedee Coltrane would later comment to that end uh, that, listen, I, I thought it was disgusting. I wanted nothing to do with it. But because Joseph Smith was a prophet, I obeyed. Hmm. So, we do have some evidence of some pretty strong resistance. Um, now, I, I do need, need to cover myself here. You know, there is some dispute as to whether Zebedee Coltrane um, indeed performed those ordinances or not. Uh, I'm inclined to think that uh, that he actually did, largely because you know Zebedee Coltrane was so, you know, his feelings were so visceral and, and and so passionate that I personally have a hard time seeing how someone with such passionate feelings would ever conjure up a memory like that. You know, that's the kind of thing that stays with you. Uh, so, so regardless... The, we the, wa- the Washington anointings would have happened in the early 1840s, right? No, no this would have been in the, 18, in the mid-1830s at, at the Kirtland Temple. Were we doing Washington anointings that early? Yes, yes, we, we absolutely were. I mean, this was, you know, there was no endowment at, at this point, and it was very... The, the, you know, the ordinance was quite similar to you know, the washing of the feet, in the New Testament, um, you know, it was an ordinance that was associated with spiritual spiritual gifts, so you know, it definitely was infused with a kind of spiritual power. Uh, but this was not at all like the endowment that would be administered in Nauvoo. Was it viewed as a saving ordinance? I just didn't know anything about this. Um, it, it was it was viewed as an ordinance that was to be administered largely to Joseph Smith's confidants. Huh. And um, at this stage, you know, the idea of ordinances. Being saving ordinances, you know, the kind of you know, uh, you know, items on on a checklist. You know, that idea hadn't really developed in Mormon thought yet. Um, at this stage, ordinances were seen primarily as a means of communicating a, a higher level of, of spiritual knowledge. Got it. 
Okay. And then later that would have been sort of brought into the temple ceremony as as the washings and anointings officially. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's okay. Right. okay. Got it. All right. Sorry. Didn't want to derail us, but I I wanted to understand uh, the time frame with the Zebedee Cold train thing and the the context. So keep going. By all means, yes. So Elijah Abel's uh, provides some assistance in the construction of the Kirtland Temple, um, and he receives the priesthood in March of 1836. Now, for those doubting Thomases out there who just, they've got to see it to believe, I can tell you right now that we have smoking gun evidence that Elijah Abels was ordained to the priesthood. That's not even a point uh, open to dispute anymore. We can just get over that. We have his priesthood certificate signed by Joseph Smith himself. Joseph Smith attests to his good character, to his diligence, you know, to, to the church, his commitment to the church, and his commitment to preaching the gospel. So Elijah who, Abel's, who has that document? Uh, you know, it's just in the Kirtland um, Elders Licenses book. I mean, anyone can walk into the Church History Library right now and um, and examine it. The the original, a, a digital copy of it. Yes. Okay. Okay. And it's but it's not part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. No, it is not. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So that's not okay. And so would 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 he have definitely been the first? black mormon then or do we know i think i think we're pretty safe to say that that he is there is only one other candidate and that would be a black pete as he was called we don't know his last name um he was a member of the kirtland mormon community from late 1830 to uh, you know early 1831 we do not know if he was in fact ordained to the priesthood or not there is no documented evidence um he, he did talk about receiving an ordination of some kind, but he said it in a context where he could be referring to, you know, more of a, a heavenly ordination or, or a spiritual ordination, not so much a, you know, an ordination by the laying on of hands. Okay, so are you saying that we know we have official records of no other black ordination than, than Elijah Abel's? Uh, later on, we have evidence of of blacks receiving uh, the priesthood. Walker Lewis in, in okay, Massachusetts, okay. for example. Okay. But Elijah Abel's was definitively the first to have documented evidence of receiving the of receiving the priesthood. Okay, the the first that we can 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 know, nail down. Can, yeah. That's right. Okay, because I did remember Margaret and Darius saying at least two or three were likely likely have received it. So. Right, jo- and Joseph Ball is another example of that too. Okay. So. Okay. All right. All right. So likely the first. Okay, keep going. So Elijah Abels receives the priesthood. Obviously, you know, there is significant resistance to this. And Joseph Smith, he refused to cow to it. He insists that Elijah Abels be integrated into the predominantly white Mormon community. Joseph and Elijah, they forge a strong friendship that just it manages to deflect all of this criticism. And Joseph Smith, you know, he, he would constantly bat down Snyder Marks from, you know, from a variety of, of church leaders. Uh, a couple of years later, um, Joseph Smith, having the kind of faith in Elijah Abel's that he does, he sends Elijah on a mission to Upper Canada, now known as Ontario. Uh, now, at first, we might think that to be a, a rather you know, unremarkable mission call. After all, you know, we have you know, other church members who hailed from Upper Canada. You know, John Taylor. You know, he um, he had hailed from Upper Canada. So you think that there's nothing terribly noteworthy about this. But for Elijah Abel's, there was something 
very important about Ontario, and that was it was the leading site for runaway slaves. It was the northern terminus of the Underground Railroad. So when Elijah Abel set foot in Ontario in 1838, he saw a large population of people who looked like him. This was not an experience um, he had been terribly accustomed to since joining the Latter-day Saints. But now that he was in Ontario, he would have been in a, a veritable sea of runaway slaves. So I, I do think that it is significant he was, uh, that he was called to Ontario of all places. Right, as a missionary. As a missionary. Yeah, okay. And, and we have and were, were seventies missionaries back then. Were they almost synonymous? Um, I mean, you could be a seventy without being a missionary, and um, you could be a missionary without being a seventy. But if you're going to be a called uh, called to be a seventy, which he had been by the end of 1836, uh, it was almost certain that you would end up call, uh, being um, called on a mission at some point. And and just so that we understand the calling, is it is it similar to being a seventy today? Were there were first, second, and third quorums. Uh, uh, yes, there were. You know, there were three quorums of seventy in the in the early church, um, and then you know towards you know in you know later on you know, those organizations were done away with and, and they began to decentralize seventies. So you know you could have a, a seventy in every ward, um, right? But more recently, you know, we have gone back to the original model. Okay, all right, got it. So he was viewed. So would he have been viewed as a, quote, general authority or area authority, or was it not like that? Uh, you know, they didn't really use the the terms general authority, but they certainly would have seen him as being a person of authority. Right. You know, and it, it was one of those things where you know, the better part of the Latter-day Saint population, you know, they either had indifferent or, you know, rather resistant feelings to him. But because of his relationship with Joseph Smith— they were willing to, you know, to kind of roll with it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me just ask about that. So, you know, for, for those of us who want Joseph Smith to, you know, come off in a positive light, we're going to want to find things that, that make him look good. And so right. one, one of the things that the church, you know, in, in its in its movie that, that I saw on Temple Square you know, about, about the prophet, you know, it mm -hmm. wants to make him look like a feminist. It wants to make him look like, you know, the best husband and father. It wants to make him look sure. like someone who's very generous and, and sure. tolerant of, of racial minorities. And it, so what I'm asking you to do is to help us understand how cool or interesting or progressive was it for Joseph to be totally close, tight friends with and supportive right. of a black man versus just like normal, you know, was there a, a, a bimodal distribution of love and support for black people? Or was he really like in two orders of magnitude right. away from the mean? You know? <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't call Joseph Smith a radical if that's what you're asking. I mean, if you wanted to find a, you know, a good radical, I could point you to other Mormons who are more radical than Joseph Smith. Um, but but that being said, I, I do think Joseph Smith should be given some credit for um, for giving Elijah Abel's the level of authority that he did. You know, it was not entirely unheard of for uh, for black preachers to have some kind of jurisdiction over white congregations in the north. Um, there there had been you know one such preacher not far from Joseph Smith's own home. Uh, that being said, uh, it it was somewhat unusual. 
So Joseph Smith gets credit for that. That being said, though, um, it's also important to understand you know, the political and social situation that Joseph Smith faced when he ordained Elijah Abels to the priesthood. So when the saints were kicked out of Jackson County, Missouri in, in su uh, summer, fall of 1833, one of the leading complaints uh, against them was that they were too friendly to black people. Uh, they were being called, quote-unquote, black Mormons. They were being accused of wanting to support racial integration, um, you know, inviting black people you know, into the state of Missouri to, to marry their, you know, their, their fine daughters. So you know, white Mormons weren't just seen as a strange religious sect. They were seen as um, a, a kind of these social radicals who wanted to overturn um, all the hierarchies that mattered to Missourians. Now, that was that was thirty eight when they when when they were kicked out of Missouri. Is that you know, right? They were kicked out of Jackson County in eighteen thirty three. Uh, they were oh. kicked out of the state of Missouri in eighteen thirty eight. Okay, uh, got it, got it. So in eighteen thirty three, and part of the reasons for this was W.W. Um, w. Phelps, you know, the the editor of the Evening and Morning Star in Missouri, you know, he had published some articles that said some very po uh, positive things about the anti-slavery movement, you know, about maybe allowing some blacks to come into the Mormon community, and because of this, you know, it immediately cast them as as these wild-eyed abolitionists, not unlike you know people such as William Lloyd Garrison uh, out in New York City, right, and. You know, in this reputation, and it wasn't just you know, kind of it wasn't just trash talk. It proved deadly for the Latter Day Saint people. So when the Saints were kicked out of Jackson County, you know, it it taught Joseph Smith some um, some pretty potent lessons. Uh, lesson number one: Don't get too close to the black population. Um, if you do, then the Latter Day Saints will be cast as abolitionists, and they will continue to suffer mob attacks. So right, Joseph right. Smith, he was forced to negotiate you know, a pretty delicate political situation. And it's because of this that in, um, in April of 1836, only one month after he had ordained uh, Elijah Abels to the priesthood, he published an editorial um, in the Messenger and Advocate, basically defending slavery as God's curse on an immoral and beastly people. You know, he, he talked about black people in very disparaging terms, you know, saying that he, he wouldn't dream of letting such a cast of, of, of creatures uh, unle uh, letting he wouldn't dream of letting such a cast of creatures go on a white population. Wait, and, Joseph Smith wrote that? Joseph Smith wrote that. In 1836? In April of 1836, one month after ordaining Elijah Abels. Wow. I wonder if that made... Wow, I wonder if he and Elijah had a little conversation about that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I sometimes wonder. You know, I, I, it's interesting that you bring that up because you know, Elijah, he had so many opportunities to be offended. He had lots of legitimate, you might say, opportunities to say, hey, you know, you know what? I do not need this. You know, I can you know, go live in, a, in a, a, a community in the north where I'll be free from this persecution. You know, it may not be perfect, but hey, it, it beats the heck out of you know, having my prophet say these things about me. And yet, you know, with the exception of maybe a few years in the late 1840s, he never even came close to wavering. So, yeah. Okay, so I derailed you. You were talking about um, him going to Canada. What year was that again? Did he was that was in 1838. Okay, so that we're still in that time frame. Okay, we are. So, so yes. in '36, you're saying that Joseph ordains him, writes that letter. We don't know if there was a conversation about it. 
but we know that we know that Joseph was both progressive in some ways, but also caught in a delicate political situation that made him have to be ambivalent about the the black issue. And you're saying that he wrote kind of a pro-slavery piece during kind of those later Missouri years. Yes, yes, um, and largely in an effort to deflect this, yeah. you know, this spursion of being an abolitionist. No one wanted to be an abolitionist. It would be a couple months after that article when Governor Daniel Dunklin of Missouri would send a letter to W.W. W. Phelps, and in this letter, Dunklin would say, so you've been called abolitionists, and you're basically guilty until proven innocent. So if you want to prove that you're not abolitionists, you better get to it, because if you don't, um, vox populi, vox dei. Right. In this republic, the voice of the people is the voice of God. I can do nothing to keep the mobs back. Now, was he the was he the successor to Boggs? Then was he no, the no, he was the predecessor to Boggs. To Boggs. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, so delicate times. Um, uh, all right, so you were going to talk about the 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 Canadian the Canadian mission. mission. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Whatever conversations uh, took place between Elijah and, and Joseph, uh, they did not have a long-lasting impact on, on his faith because he was willing to serve a mission on behalf of the church in, in Canada. He arrives in Canada, and there is such a large population of, of black people that it's, it's impossible to not suppose, you know, did Joseph Smith send Elijah Abels to Canada in an effort to preach to the black population. Um, you know, Missouri, it was, it was off limits for black people now. They had passed laws saying that no free black would be allowed in the state of Missouri. Here you have Joseph Smith, good friends with Elijah, and he had to have been thinking, so what are we going to do for people like Elijah? Right. So... Did he want? Uh, I, to, did he? Do you think maybe he wanted to get Elijah out of the state? Like, let's just get him out of here, because well, Elijah never went to Missouri. Oh, okay, okay, got it. But Joseph, he saw Missouri as the gathering place, and he knew that there would be no place for people like Elijah. So, my, you know, my argument, and this isn't something that we can, you know, nail down firmly, but I do think that, you know, there is good reason to to believe this. But my, my argument is that. Joseph was considering the possibility of establishing black congregations in Upper Canada. You know, newspapers throughout the region were talking about, you know, how how well educated and how hardworking the black population in, in Upper Canada was. Joseph Smith would have been exposed to this. Here you have a faithful black man, and in Joseph's eyes, you know, there would be no better way of feeling out the possibilities of this than sending his black missionary um, to Upper Canada. Got it. Okay, so he went. How long was so he, he there? So he gets there. He, he he's walking the streets of, of Upper Canada. He he is renowned for being a, a powerful pre preacher, even though he was a very illiterate. Uh, we have you know one document, uh, a, a letter from a woman who witnessed him preaching saying that the Spirit of God rested upon him, and she heard a gospel sermon like she had never heard before. Uh, you know, even later in life, you know, 50 years after she heard these sermons, uh, she wrote a letter to a, to a friend saying, you know what, there is no person I would rather see than Elijah Abels. Wow. So Elijah Abels made a lasting impact on the population of Canada. And, you know, other things happened while he was there, um, there too. And, and these are events that people have generally overlooked 
when studying the life of Elijah Abels. You know, I credit Newell Bringhurst for his, you know, his short biography of Elijah back in, in the late 1970s. It was, it was a tremendous piece. What was that called? That was called Elijah Abel and the Changing Place of Blacks Within Mormonism. Okay. Maybe Changing Status. I, the, the, name, the exact name is slipping my mind right now. Okay, so was Newell the first to, to write a book on Elijah? Oh, it wasn't a book. It was it was a relatively short article. Oh, got him. it, got it. Uh, and Lester Bush, he had talked about him in his famous 1973 article yep. as well, yep. but not nearly um, with the depth that Newell Bringhurst did. Okay, got it. So while he was there, uh, there was some pretty um, – pretty dangerous political situations that were swirling around Elijah in Upper Canada. Um, in late 1837 or early 1838, there had been a group of pro-American rebels who were beginning to plan to secede from the British Empire. Um, and they wanted to uh, ally themselves with the United States, you know, really create their own republic you know, with the United States as their patron. Uh, obviously, British authorities catch wind of this and you know they're not going to take too uh, too kindly to people who are threatening to secede. And to make matters worse, there was a prominent Mormon who was one of the, one of the rebels, uh, namely Moses Nickerson. When did Canada get so, its independence? Just to give us context, do, do you know? Uh, uh, right off the top of my head, uh, the I I cannot tell you, but it's oh. later on in the nineteenth century. Okay, okay. So we're still under under British rule. Okay. Right, we're still we are still under British rule at this point in Canada. Uh, in Canada. In okay. Canada. That's yeah. right. All right. So, um, Elijah Abel's here. You have this black Mormon American, and you have the British who see, you know, the Americans as basically friends of these rebels. Right. Um, and in these kinds of circumstances, you can imagine that. Anyone who is an American is going to be subject to legal prosecution, or anyone who says good things about America, which Mormons often did. I mean, after all, Missouri is the promised land. It's you know, it, it is the Garden of Eden. It is where we will be gathering for the millennium. Um, and before long, you see Mormons throughout the region being imprisoned, you know, being brought for, before tribunals. You see mob attacks on Mormons' home, Mormon homes. You know they're they're breaking through through glass windows, uh, destroying families. Families. A lot of uh, pretty bad things are happening to American Mormons at this time. So Elijah Abel's is surrounded by mob activity, by anti-American rhetoric. Making matters worse, there are re uh, vigilantes in upstate New York who are smuggling arms across the St. Lawrence Riverway. Wow. Okay. And they're hoping to you know foment rebellion even further. So Elijah Abels tells the saints that they need to get out of Canada quite reasonably, if you ask me. Um, furthermore, he says that there will be stakes of Zion throughout all the world. Now, for traditional Mormon dogma at that time, this, you know, was, this was at best not exactly orthodox. You know, Missouri was the promised land. That is where the Mormons were, were to gather. There wasn't supposed to be this talk about you know, establishing stakes throughout the world. Huh. Um, it's a bit and, of a visionary yeah, there. Yeah, yes, I would say that Elijah Abel's was prescient, you know, in his ability to foresee in a modern Zion. So he helps to lead the saints away from, you know, away from the tumult of of Canada. You know, the, he, at one point he had a dodge, a tarring and feathering, and you know, one of the one of the white Mormon sisters actually opened fire on the mob, 
in, in order to protect Elijah. Huh. So we know that he had a good relationship with white Mormons there. They eventually escape Upper Canada, and some of them make their way down to Nauvoo, and that's where Elijah Abel settles down uh, for you know, the next two to three years. So he goes to Nauvoo. He leaves, he leaves Canada around what year? He leaves Canada in uh, late 1838, Okay, uh, around the same time that the Missouri Saints are being expelled uh, from Missouri by Lilburn W. Boggs. But Nauvoo didn't start until like 1840, right? That's right. So he must I mean, have gone yeah. to Missouri first? or No, no what, what basically happened was they, um, they entered Michigan and they came down south and settled in uh, western Illinois uh, around the same time that Joseph Smith arrived in, in late 1839. Okay, all right. Wow, so he's there right at the beginning of Nauvoo. Yes. Okay. Cool. So what did he do in Nauvoo? So what did he do in Nauvoo? You know, he, served, he worked as a carpenter. He worked as a, an undertaker. He, he would have been right there by Joseph Smith Sr.'s bedside you know, as the, as the local undertaker. Now, undertaker would be like a mortician? What, yes. what is that? Yeah, that's, so they that's would embalm, embalm bodies? You know, I, I'm not terribly familiar okay, with the fine. particulars of, you know, of mid-19th century mortician practices. No, I'm just uh, curious. I, that's right, fine. right. No, that's yeah. – uh, but he, he certainly was a major caretaker for the dead, probably because of his carpentry skills. So he'd so, make, maybe make the coffins. Yes, okay. yes, exactly. Right. So Elijah Abel's, um, he also served a, a key role in a, in a rescue mission uh, after Joseph Smith had been kidnapped in, in 1841. Um, you know, he, he is what, along with you know, the famous destroying angel, Bill Hickman, you know, went to save uh, Joseph Smith you know, from a, a group of Missouri ruffians. Um, so Elijah Abel's was definitely one of Joseph, Joseph Smith's go-to guys you know, when it came time for a crunch. So in 1842, Elijah Abel's makes a, a pretty significant decision, and that is to move away from Nauvoo to the city of his freedom, and that is uh, Cincinnati. Oh, okay. Um, Again, what year? 1842. Okay, so that's before... That's before Joseph's martyrdom. So why is he leaving Nauvoo? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, one author I've read has, uh, has argued that it was because it, uh, Elijah had a sister living in Miami, Ohio. Um, I, I've looked up the biogra- biography of this supposed sister, and it, it's a pretty tough sell, if you ask me. She, uh, she is, or her husband is of Germanic descent. They got married in Maryland, uh, which... It makes it highly unlikely that she would have been of African descent. Um, you know, interracial marriages were taboo for everybody. Right. Yeah, Joseph Smith, you know, you name it. You know, no one got, you know, no one really, especially in that area, dared to engage in interracial marriage. So I, I'm not inclined, the point of that is I, I'm not inclined to believe that it was his sister. Frankly, we don't know the exact reasons. We know that Joseph Smith approved of him going. Okay. Uh, in early 1843, you know, he told saints, you know, go to Cincinnati and you'll find, you know, one of the most educated, uh, refined black people you'll ever see. In fact, he's probably more refined than the politicians in Washington. <laughs> that's a real quote, or a, that's a real know, quote paraphrase. that comes from the yeah, that's a paraphrase from uh, Joseph Smith's journal. Okay, cool. So Elijah Abel's arrives in Cincinnati, and Cincinnati, like many of the places where Elijah um, had lived, was a dangerous place. Uh, in late 1841, uh, there had been a, one of the worst race riots that the northern states had seen in its history. 
Oh. Uh, and you know there had been an anti-abolitionist riot in 1836. So Cincinnati, it it was a, a racially explosive place. You know, it was the vortex of the Underground Railroad. You know, it was really the home. It was the home of a Harriet Beecher in her early years. It was where a Harriet Beecher became a, a acquainted with slavery and one of the key uh, passages of uh, uncle tom's cabin was inspired by a scene that she saw across the river in northern kentucky so uh, cincinnati it it was a a hot place to be especially if you were a a free black and remind me it was a slave state or was not Uh, ohio or kentucky ohio ohio was not a slave state but in southern southern ohio you had uh, strong pro-slavery sentiments got it okay but Kentucky was a slave state. Kentucky was a yeah. slave state. Okay, got it. All right. So, so a in hot, summer hot of, eight, bed of 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 sort of antagonism towards blacks. That's right. You know, only a few months earlier, you know, your average white person would have seen um, bands of armed blacks roaming the streets. So, you know, when Elijah Abels walks into the situation, you know, he, he's going to have to watch his step. And it's noteworthy that, you know, he doesn't move to a white neighborhood. He moves to eastern Cincinnati, which is known as Little Africa. And it's really the slums. Oh. I mean, it's, you know, prostitution is rampant. Gambling is rampant. Um, you know, he's just living as a renter with, you know, with a, a local white collar guy. So, you know, the world in which Elijah Abels lived, you know, resembled more of the inner city than it did this, you know, nice frontier milieu that we like to imagine when we talk about Mormonism, right. especially Mormonism in the 19th century. Right. So another important thing happened in spring of 1842 as well, and that was the baptism of a man by the name of Reese E. Price. Now, Reese E. Price, he's a big deal in Cincinnati history. If you go to Cincinnati today, you can find you know, two major landmarks devoted to his name. Uh, you have an elementary school named after Reese e. Price, and you also have a suburb named after Reese e. Price. So he casts a long shadow over Cincinnati history. And uh, the reason that is, is one, he was very wealthy. Um, he was a prominent figure in the community. Uh, but also important is that he had been a longtime member of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society Executive Board. He was cl- in close alignment with abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, John Rankin, and Gamaliel Bailey. Now, now these were not your typical, you know, okay, we don't like slavery, but we're not going to do anything about it for the people. They were the kind of people who said, we need to end slavery right now, today. Okay, okay. So and they were spring, they were in Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, and Reese Price, he was born and raised in Cincinnati. You know, a, a true son of the region. He joined the Latter Day Saints. Oh. And, um, you know, the reasons he joined the Latter Day Saints. I mean, that is a, a fascinating discussion, and you can you know, look more into that if if uh, listeners choose to uh, to purchase my book. But the short story is that. It was around 1842 that Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints generally uh, began to think a little bit more broadly about their future as a people. You know, up you know throughout the Missouri period, Mormons had basically envisioned themselves as law-abiding citizens. You know, we're going to appeal to the courts. That's, that's what the Revelation said. You know, abide by the law of the land. Right. Um, but after the expulsion from Missouri. You know, after Martin Van Buren had told Joseph Smith, you know what, your cause is just, but we can do nothing for you. The, late, the Latter-day Saints underwent massive disillusionment 
with you know not just um, you know, the legal system, but with America generally. Yeah. Yep. That led to the Council of Fifty stuff and and all that. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the and the Council of Fifty is uh, important in this in the sense, that if only in a tangential way. But Reese Price's political views accorded nicely with those of the Council of Fifty. Um, in 1850, Reese Price would identify himself uh, in the census as a three as as a theocrat by trade. Oh wow! That was his profession, was theocracy. Wow! So when Reese Price joined the church, you know, he wasn't just joining any other religion. You know, he saw the Latter Day Saint people as you know, an alternative to America. And he was so committed to the ending of slavery. I mean, it, you know, his passion for ending slavery really knew no bounds, uh, that he was willing to do anything to do it. Now, you're not saying and, Elijah Abel converted him, are you? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> All I know is that they went to church at the same time in the same place. Interesting. Okay. Well, we don't have a baptismal record for Reese Price. We, well, we don't have a baptismal record, but we do have a letter identifying him um, as being baptized. Got it. Um, Elijah Abels wouldn't have baptized him, though. Phineas Young did. Okay. Um, so regardless of, of exactly how it went down, um, I feel quite certain in saying that Reese Price and Elijah Abels would have forged an immediate connection. Um, you know, Reese Price was well-connected to the Underground Railroad. You know, his, all the other members of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society Executive Board were Underground Railroad conductors or they collaborated in some way. So I think it's fair to suppose that Reese Price was also involved in that, you know, given the depth of his involvement with that society. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So it's, you know, one could speculate that Elijah Abels was involved in the under Underground Railroad. Before we've, you know, before that has been a you know, a pretty big speculation and say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe not. But now that we have the Reese Price connection, we can feel like that is not such an, an it's not such a radical or, or out there idea. Um, where, where was Harry Tubbin living at this point? Do you know? You, you know, off the top of my head, I, okay. I don't. All right. All right. Just curious. Okay. Right. Right. But, you know, it, it is worth noting that um, Harriet Beecher and Elijah Abels uh, lived in um, Cincinnati at the same time, yeah, you know, yeah. back in, in 1832. So, you know, they, they definitely saw the same same world. So Elijah Abels and Reese Price probably got to know, know each other pretty well. In June of 1843, though, th three apostles passed through Cincinnati, Heber C. Kimball, Johnny Page, and Orson Pratt. Say the year again. 1843. Okay, all right. So it's a year so before Prophet's death. Okay. A year before Prophet's death, a year after Reese Price joins the church and Elijah Abels comes to Cincinnati. Okay. These three apostles come through um, come through the region, and they're probably informed of all of the uh, racial riots that have been going on in Cincinnati. And they here they see, one, an abolitionist, and two, a black man, which had been the sources of their uh, mob problems in Missouri. So you know, being in, you know, being leaders of the church as they were, and worried sick that Jackson County was going to happen again, they felt it necessary to take immediate action in regards to Elijah Abel's relationship with the white community. Oh, okay. They directed they directed that Elijah Abel's um, basically be prohibited from interacting with the white community on a proselytizing basis. He was only to preach to black people. Okay. Interesting. 
and this is you know really the first evidence that we have of you know any kind of decision being made as regards to black people in mormonism um, before this time you know yeah you have you know some criticism from people like jedediah m grant and zebedee coltrane and others uh, but this is the first instance where there was an official decision made saying that black people could not interact with white people within the, the Mormon tradition. They didn't strip him of his of his priesthood, and, and that's an important point uh, worth noting. And in fact, that would never happen. Elijah Abels would never have his priesthood taken from him. Right. Um, but this is the first case. Right. Listen, as a matter of political expediency, uh, we can't let there be any kind of racial integration. Um, it. It's it's interesting that it was only a few months later when Reese Price apostatized. Oh, he formed his own his own movement. He called himself a new prophet. He began releasing, uh, you know, statements to the press, you know, prophesying about the future of America, the future of the British Isles. Um, he he never spoke of his Mormonism except to a, a select few, and really for the rest of his life, uh, no. Virtually no one would bring up his um, his brief stint with Mormonism. Okay, all right. Uh, but yet you can see Mormonism flavor most of what he does, and you know that's you know the story of Reese Price is you know, an entirely different story and and one that could be saved for another time. Um, are there are there biographies about him? You know there is no solid biography, at least you know secondary works. You know there were some biographical sketches in the late nineteenth century. Okay. Uh, we have letters to the editor that he wrote, uh, but his story has yet to be written. Got it. So he leaves the church. Elijah Abel's stays, and June of eighteen forty-four, of course, Joseph Smith is assassinated by a mob in Carthage jail. Now. Interestingly enough, we don't see a lot of evidence of how Elijah Abel's reacted to the uh, prophet's death. Um, he, he was certainly notified of it uh, by you know some some passing missionaries, but you know, they they don't indicate you know him saying anything. They don't indicate that you know this great black friend of the prophet reacted in in any particular way. The next evidence we have of Elijah Abel's doing anything is in summer of 1845, when as a presiding 70, you know, he plays a key role in supporting the 12 during the succession crisis. Um, now, as far as I'm concerned, that's uh, a fascinating thing, because here you have, you know, Elijah Abels has been uh, deeply criticized by, you know, by some members of the 12. Joseph Smith was really his only friend and, and, and confidant. And yet he upholds the twelve. Yeah. So, yeah, that that isn't uh, what I would expect him to do. And he even um, upholds it to the point of uh, of ordering the ex or calling for the excommunication of three women who dared to criticize church leaders and fail to attend church meetings. And no one really questioned him on it. They backed him up on it, and the women were swiftly kicked out of the church. Uh, the branch president said, "You know what? We've never had a more unified time and in, um, in our branch than we than we do today." Oh, okay, interesting. So he's kind of a I don't know is it a, is he a company guy a little bit like just really loyal to the institution? It, you know that's the that's the impression that uh, you know, that arises from the documents is. You know, he believed in institutional Mormonism. And, you know, that didn't mean that he was un, um, incapable of resisting. We would see him resist some decisions quite heartily uh, later on in life. 
but he would never defect from the institution. It was a little bit like how um, Quakers see you know, their community. There's this notion in, in Quakerism of the peace covenant, um, saying that, you know, listen, you all can follow your inner light, as they called it. You know, you can all believe your own doctrine, feel your own things, but don't leave the Quakers. You're part of this community, and, you know, and it's not right for you to break off from us. You know, have all the intellectual freedom you want, but you're still a Quaker. Got it. And, you know, that's, I think, I think there is a comparison between Elijah Abel's and the peace covenant in that regard. Okay. <clears throat> so Elijah Abel's cracks down a dissent in Cincinnati. And he continues to live in Cincinnati for the next eight years. Now, it's during this time period where Elijah really, he, he disappears from the narrative. And it's unfortunate because it's probably one of the more fascinating time periods in Cincinnati Mormon history. Um, because remember, you've got a number of individuals who've been vying for supremacy in, in the Mormon movement. You've got James Strang. You've got Sidney Rigdon. You know, you have the 12. And then later on in Covington, Kentucky, and, you know, by extension, Cincinnati, you have Joseph Smith's younger brother, William Smith. Yeah, and in fact, we just released today a four-hour series on the, on the history of the Community of Christ or the RLDS Church, and we actually go into the succession crisis crisis quite a bit in the first two hours. So, yeah, that that was a really significant time in the church for sure. And you know the succession crisis affected the Cincinnati Saints just like it affected the Nauvoo Saints, except they didn't have a miracle of a mantle. Right. You know, they yeah. didn't have a great showdown between, you know, Brigham Young and Sidney Rigdon. You know, it was all fought uh, in absentia. In now, now I need to I need to ask your opinion on this because the scholars that I've talked to said that the Nauvoo Saints didn't really have a miracle of the mantle either. Do you? You know, that that was something that, that was written about 20, 20 years later. You, you know, I, I've looked at the evidence on that, and I do find it convincing that certain church leaders wrote about it, you know, you know, with some of them without even being there. Um, that being said, I see a multiplicity um, of evidences that I, I don't know exactly what happened. You know, okay, I, I, I that's can't, fine. That's but, fine. But I, I'm inclined to think that certain people experienced something. Yeah. You, know, you could say that it was Brigham Young's presence. You know, you could say that it was, you know, his ability to preach powerfully. Um, you know, you could say it's a number of things. They were inspired. Uh, they were just inspired. Yes. Yeah. They inspired, they, they felt inspired. And, you know, for them, they felt it was Joseph Smith esque. and I'm not in a position to deny them, you know, of their voice. So, so yeah, I, I, since I, I don't have enough contemporary evidence, you know, to really nail it down in the same way that I nailed on other things. Sure. I, I'm sympathetic to those who feel that there was some kind of spiritual manifestation. Okay. Um, sure. That's cool. Sure. So, um, so yeah, um, moving onward, I suppose. Okay. So you're saying, you were saying that the Cincinnati saints didn't, whatever happened with Brigham Young, they didn't get that in Cincinnati. So they had to figure out with, with whom their allegiances lay. Right. Right, and my guess is Elijah Abels was probably one of the um, one of the most ardent um, defenders of the Twelve in Cincinnati. Okay, uh, and what's interesting about this is how well connected he was to the dissenting community. You know, he was not making the, you know he was not cracking down without knowing any of these uh, other contenders. Uh, let's take for example um, Zenas Gurley. Uh, my guess is Zenas Gurley's name came up. Uh, during your conversations on the rise of the community of Christ? Uh, does it ring a bell, but maybe. Okay, so no. 
Right. He initially joined with James Strang. Um, he became quickly uh, uh, disenchanted, and he eventually came to believe that the only way that the church could endure was through the seed of, of Joseph Smith. What's noteworthy is that Zenas Gurley and Elijah Abels served a mission together in okay. Canada. All right. Zenas Gurley ordained somebody with Elijah Abels to the priesthood. Right. So Elijah Abels and Zenas Gurley uh, were very close, and yet Elijah Abels chose the Twelve. Um, you know, let's take William Smith as another example. When William Smith, you know, eventually formed his own movement, you know, he, he had already associated with the Strangites, and, you know, he had become disenchanted with, with them. He, he felt that they had fooled him with some, you know, with, with a fake miracle. Uh, he comes back to, uh, to Cincinnati, and he says, no, as... Joseph's, um, you know, as Joseph's brother, I have the right to succession, oh. and the keys rest with me. Mm -hmm. In 1850, William Smith's movement falls apart. He, you know, he, he's accused of polygamy. Um, he's run out of town, right? And he ends up boarding for a brief time with none other than Elijah Abels. Huh. Interesting. Uh, and part of that's because one of William Smith's apostles was also born with Elijah Abels at this time. So Eli in 1845, Elijah Abels had cracked down on dissenters in favor of the Twelve. Now in 1850, he is, you know, you could say chumming around with, you know, some of the Twelve's leading critics. You know, now the question is, what did that mean? Um, right. Uh, I don't know all the answers to this. Um, it is worth noting, though, that the man who lauded Elijah Abels for bringing the branch together, by 1850, he had totally apostatized, you know, from the Twelveites or the, or the Brighamites. He was a, uh, he had totally committed committed himself to William Smith. He even wrote a hymn in his honor. So, for all intents and purposes, I think it's fair to say that whatever branch existed in Cincinnati by 1850 wasn't much of a branch. Right. So Elijah Abels was basically left without a strong faith community. I could imagine him saying, oh, you know what, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, to make matters worse, there was a woman in the, in the branch uh, who had written a letter to the Twelve, and she was talking about Joseph Smith being um, the atoning savior of mankind. Wow. So you have radical thought all over the place. And Elijah Abels, he was... You know, in most things, he was never much of a radical. The most radical thing he said is that there would be stakes of Zion in all the world. Uh, other than that, he was a man of the institution. So you've okay. got this woman over here talking about Joseph Smith. You've got, you know, John, you know the, the branch president talking about William Smith. And I could imagine Elijah saying, you know what, I'm, I'm good. Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I'm living a good life. So for now, I'm just going to settle into Cincinnati. So eventually, William, William Smith leaves, uh, and in 1853, Elijah Abels finally chooses to move west uh, to live with the saints in Zion. And you know that really marks you know an important turning point in his life. You know, be before 1853, he had been a man on the move. He had you know been going on a mission to Canada. He had been you know running away from, from mobs. It, it had been a, a pretty tumultuous experience for him. Uh, by now, he, you know, he had married. He had, uh, you know, he had a, a child. He eventually, you know, he had a second child uh, a few years later. And 
by the time he arrived in in Utah, you know, he was ready to settle down and you know, maybe live a quieter life, and and he would live a quieter quieter life. So these these two children were with a different woman than he had had his first yes. child that passed away. Yes, in 1847, um, he married a young woman by the name of uh, Mary Ann Adams. Uh, she was extremely extremely young, uh, about 17 years old, uh, and we know very little about how they uh, became acquainted. But the fact that she was a teenager and a black, and she was from Tennessee, uh, could hint at the possibility that she was herself a runaway slave. And you know, one might speculate that Elijah Abels met her as a part, you know, as a part of his work in the underground underground railroad. And, but that's just something that we don't know. Okay, but she did she convert to the church? Was she LDS? Yes, yes, she joined the church and she lived faithfully uh, for the rest of her life. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor.